Thanks for clicking play on the East Lake Tri-Cities Talks podcast. If you're new to this, we're trying to be the best church option for people in the Tri-Cities who aren't typically into church. We hope today's talk inspires you to take next steps in doing life in the way Jesus modeled and taught. If you're ever interested in being a part of one of our in-person gatherings, they take place every Sunday at the Uptown Theater in Richland. Check the website for current times. And regardless of what you look like, who you voted for, or where your tattoos are, we'd love to have you. But for now, here's our most recent talk. Confession, I don't always watch the videos, the funny videos before a Sunday, which is kind of dangerous, I know. Um, <laughs> and I'm, but I'm glad I did this week because there is at least a decent chance I would have worn a Seahawks jersey. Um, <laughs> And that would have been, been real embarrassing or an attempt to look like I'm trying to extend the joke a little bit or whatever. And for those of you watching online, you didn't get to see that intro video, so you have no idea what's going on. But welcome anyways. We're glad that you're watching this or watching this on replay. Glad that you're here. For those of you here in person, we're continuing a series uh, today called The Gentle Answer. We kicked it off last week. And if you missed it, you can always go to eastlaketricities.com slash talks and catch up. Or we have an app. You can download that and get that uh, in that way. But basically, it's a series on uh, underreactions. We're more familiar with the overreactions to give us away sometimes. Overreactions kind of communicate some things. In fact, uh, when I'm watching sports with my kids, especially my, my, my sons, because I'm trying to like get them, I need an excuse to watch more sports. And if I can get my kids involved in it, then it's a family thing. You know how that works? You know how that works, dads. Uh, so uh, every once in a while, if it's, if it's uh, somebody that I'm not all that emotionally invested into, uh, then my, my son uh, has to ask me, dad, who, who are we cheering for in this way? Right? And I'll have to be like, oh, it's it's the blue team. They're in our division, and we want them, you know, to win. You know, they're out of our division. What, anyway, something like that. And yet, when it's one of my teams, when it's one of my teams, um, he never has to ask uh, who we're cheering for. He knows immediately because I'm overreacting to every little thing that happens on this, on this, uh, on the screen. And so it kind of gives it away in this way. And so overreactions. We tend to overreact to situations, and um, sometimes uh, you know it's funny when we watch it on on YouTube. When we watch other people's overreactions because we look at it and, and we 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 say, "I'm so glad somebody films this because." That response that was not, should not does not equal that causation, right? That causation should not equal that effect. Uh, there, that what happened was like something that you could be kind of mad at, but it deserves probably like a, a you know a number a number four and whatever. And they reacted with a ten, and now we want to film it and, and go viral and all that kind of stuff. And so uh, it's funny in that way. What's not funny is a lot of times it gives it away for us uh, about something things that we care about, things that we prioritize, um, and uh, really reflects oftentimes what we find ourselves doing is overreacting to the people um, that we are supposed to love the most, the people who share our address and our name and or our DNA. Uh, and then we, we find ourselves with other people being able to filter out some reactions. But with, with those that we love the most, we find ourselves um, overreacting in ways that we walk away from it and we go, man, I need to work on that, right? And we, we, we uh, have conversations with our significant other and we say, am I a bad dad? Am I a bad mom? Help me process through some of this and get better at this. And so I left you last week with a question that it was simply this, what perturbs you? Uh, what disturbs you? What upsets you? And what gets on your nerves? Uh, and, and I said, I, I want you to do some homework. Here's your homework from last week. What these, according to these questions, what kind of makes, what kind of riles those things up in you and, and then causes you to have overreactions? And I, and I said, it has to be a thing that they do, not a person. Like you can't categorize it a person. It's a, a gotta be a thing. What is something that you can think of that just drives you crazy? And you find yourself looking back at your pattern. I tend to overreact when these things, it's so silly 
It's so dumb. And if we ever, if we ever had somebody living in our home, like an, an exchange student or something like that, and, and, and they saw me react in this way, I'd have to like explain it to them. Listen, I know that that deserves a seven. I gave it a 10. Here's why. He does it all the time. It drives me crazy, right? And so we always have little sort of side banters about kind of what's happening and what's going on. And, and we're trying to explain uh, sort of this away. And, and we said, all right, now that you've identified that, we're going to practice this. And we're not even going to, I didn't even expect you to do it like out in the wild. I expected you to do it just at home. Just find the people that you are supposed to love the most and ask yourself the question, what would it look like to respond amazingly instead of overreacting? What would amazing look like in this moment? To take that scenario, to have that in your mind and go through your week and ask myself and ask yourself the question, what would amazing look like? Now, whether you did anything about it or didn't do anything about it, I told you to email me if you did really good at it. I only got one email. So apparently you either misread the email or you're just not, you know, you're still thinking about it. I'm still processing it, man. You're asking a lot from me. That's fine. That's still, it's open and available. Brennan East Lake Tri-Cities. But I wanted you to practice this in this way. And I, I wanted you to work on your overreactions and ask yourself the question, what would amazing look like uh, in this way? And, and I would love it for, for family members in your family to be like, what is, especially if they don't know where you got it. Like maybe they don't come to church with you or, you know, it's your kids. And so they're in like a different room. They're learning something completely different. And then all of a sudden you're like working on this and they notice and be like, what happened to dad? Something is wrong. What is he, what, where did he go? What, who is this person? Or what, medica- what medication is he finally on that is, is, is causing this transformation I like this version of dad. I'm trying to help you as you go into the school year and all that. Anyways, all right. Uh, and we said there's a, there's a verse that's associated with this. This is a, a proverb. It shows up in the Old Testament. This would be sort of a life curriculum vitae or whatever for, uh, for Jewish parents to kind of uh, indoctrinate into their kids. They didn't have public school systems back then. It was just every parent was kind of responsible to raise their kid up in a meaningful way so that they'd be a contributor to society and, and a good neighbor and all that kind of stuff. And, and so the book of Proverbs kind of functions as, they called it wisdom literature, or here's like good things to kind of base your life on. That's how you should sort of read Proverbs. Um, and there, there's one that specifically is, relates to this in chapter 15, verse one, that says, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I mean, if, if that could get into our memory and if that could be something that, I know you haven't done like memory verses since you were a kid, that's fine. We, we, we live in a society, we don't need as much, we, we think we don't need as much memory as we used to. We used to have to remember everybody's phone numbers and now we just, it's all everything right? I don't even remember my parents' address. It's all just a look it up, whatever. It's, it's one of those things we don't function with memory. And yet uh, for a lot of people growing up, this would have been like a quick thing that they, they draw out of these memory banks to be like, that's right. That's right. In this situation where I find myself potentially overreacting, responding as a 10 to something that probably required a two, if I could just replay in my, the back of my brain, I know this, a gentle answer turns away wrath. A harsh word stirs up anger. What, what, what's the goal here? What am I trying for? What's the consequence of my action that I'm about to partake in? What, what, if, what if I responded amazingly in this way? And we said that Jesus was all about this. Jesus uh, had a, a unique way of doing this. He repeatedly saw instances where he was treated unjustly, unfairly, unkindly, and he saw them as an opportunity, not as something to kind of a chip on the shoulder, something to take revenge for. He saw this as an opportunity and he invites us in the same way. We said it was the imp- impractical way of Jesus. And, and what are we, if not a community that is trying to attempt to figure out what it would look like to live in the way of Jesus in 2022? That's what, the, that's what a church community, or at least a, this, a Christian church should be about. 
Jesus lived this way. He taught a few things and, and we should take those principles and apply the ones that are directly applicable and figure out what it would look like to live in a different way with, with some, some of the other stuff. He didn't have an iPhone, but I do. So what does that mean in terms of you know, my engagement with that and, and my kids and whatever else? So he, he saw opportunities where reactions would be understood. When, when, when you're treated unjustly, unkindly, and you respond with a 10, everybody goes, that makes sense. Like, that's, that's a pretty crappy situation. So a response in that way makes sense. And he, yet he goes, ah, that's not how we do it. That's not how we, that's not the way to do it. That's an, this is an opportunity that should not be missed in this way. And he's done, he has done, and, and we, we said this, not only did he do this uh, practically in, in the way that he kind of modeled for his disciples, but he does this for us and he has done this for us on a large scale. Uh, and he expects us to do this on a, on a shorter scale. He, he responded in this way, right? It, Paul says, it, it was when we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't, do, he didn't respond and sacrifice his life because you'd lived a pretty good life and kind of deserved it. He did it before any of that was, was, was a part of the case and a part of this, the equation. And so that's a big deal. And so that's why in Matthew chapter five, we see Jesus on a mountaintop preaching a message and, and Matthew kind of recollecting at, at a later date, sort of some of his core teachings and presenting them in the book of Matthew through what we know as the Sermon on the Mount, where he says this, Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, love your enemies uh, or love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you something different. You love your enemies and you pray for those who persecute you. Why? That you may be children, your father, in heaven. What does it mean to be children of your father in heaven? That you may reflect, that you may be miniature versions, that you may actually live into being the image of God in this, because after all, God has done, still continues to do this for you, does not treat you, I, with what we deserve, but gives us grace in the midst of it. And he says, you do this practically. I'm inviting you into this impractical way. And then, and then last week we said he went into some specific you know, examples of how this works. And, and what would it look like? Then the question that we, the whole point of this series is, what, this is what we were known for. What would it look like if this is kind of what we were known for? Instead of uh, all the other things in society that Christian churches are known for. Um, what if this was the, the thing that we just couldn't shake, that we're like, wow, I don't really have a response to that, other than, yeah, we, we tend to underreact when treated unjustly, unkindly. Like, I think more so the opposite is true. But anyways, what if, what if that wasn't the case? All right, part two of the equation as we go, if this is all true, and I'm, I'm you know, long buildup to kind of get us on, all on the same page as we move forward, then part two, if this is true, then, you know, what happens next or how, where do we go from here? Um, if you have to leave early or whatever, here's the big idea for the rest of our time today. Our reactions reflect our confidence or our lack of confidence in God. Our reactions, how we react to things. Because we said, you know, we live with the adage that uh, uh, actions speak louder than words. That's true. But our reactions speak louder than both of those things. What, what do you react to? How do you react to things is a big deal. Our reactions reflect our confidence or our lack of confidence in a God who does or does not exist according to our minds. And if our overreactions are the same as everybody else, aren't we just like everybody else? And it's sort of outside of our control in that way. So what would it look like if, uh, and what would it sound like and to, uh, uh, to live as if God was actually in control. Because that's the problem that we have a lot of times is we live our lives going, I, I, I react to things because it feels like 
this scenario or this thing or my direction or my future or my, my finances or my marriage or whatever, it's out of my control. Like I don't like not having control of this. As soon as something else or somebody else or it's, it's out of reach of this way, I tend to react negatively in this way, right? I, I, I move towards that. So if it's a lack of control and we then go, yeah, but what it would look like for you to live as if God was in control, because you can come on a Sunday and you can sing songs like what we sang, right? And say, God, you're in control and all this kind of stuff. But is that actually true? Does it, because sometimes our reactions reflect that we don't actually believe the words that we sing. And that's like normal, I guess. But it's, it's how that works. I mean, this is a big deal. What would it look like, sound like to respond as if God is in control of our outcomes? And I know there's some of you still like skeptical at church and about me or whatever. And you're like, man, must be nice to live in pastor world where all that stuff makes sense. But in real world, Brent, it's not that easy. It's not that easy to get this right. And that makes sense. Because as we're gonna see today, even Jesus' earliest followers, the ones who spent time with him, his chosen 12, the people who would be most likely associated or closely associated with the person of Jesus, who you would think would get following in the way of Jesus right. After all, they're the ones who spent years with him, watched him die on a cross, had lunch with him on a beach, and it forever changed their life. You would think that they would get this right. But as we're going to see today, that's not always true. So we're going to jump into Luke chapter 9. Don't worry if you didn't bring a Bible with you. I don't even expect you to. We have it on the screens. Everything that's on the screen can be on the note sheets as well, uh, on, the, uh, on the notes page, or if you download the app, it's in there as well. But Luke chapter 51 it says this, it uh, picks up where Jesus is kind of in the middle of his three-year ministry tour. And it says that Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Or some translation says, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. This is his, my intention is now I'm gonna go. Jerusalem is the, the, the capital city. It's where the Temple Mount was. It was like the hub of everything religious. This is where you went uh, and, and made pilgrimages. This was the center of religion as a whole in this way. And that idea of setting his face towards something has like this ominous, almost deserves background music. I'm not sure if you're a Handmaid's Tale sort of person, watcher. It's okay, don't raise your hand. It's kind of, it's kind of yeah, it's one of those. Uh, but she has this thing where like, she, like, and it's almost a joke at this point because it happens so, so much. Like she raises her eyes and looks at the camera and like, I don't know, it worked once early on and they just keep going back to it and it feels overplayed at this point. But that's the, that's the idea about it. Like if there was a camera, Jesus pans towards Jerusalem and the music starts playing. Like something's coming, something's changing, ominous soundtrack engage sort of thing, right? <clears throat> and he sets out for Jerusalem. Now, the direct route is right through Samaria. So they're in Galilee, Jerusalem's down here. So they're in, the, they're in like this Northern region and this down here. The fastest way uh, to get to Jerusalem from Galilee where they're doing ministry and Nazareth and all that is through a region called Samaria. But there exists in Samaria, Samaritans, and they did not always get along with Jewish people. There's some back history with it. There was like competing, well, this Temple Mount versus this Temple Mountain, where do you live? And it's like, they just did not get along. If you could avoid it, it was worth driving around this. Even though it was gonna take you a longer time to go, you should do this. Did you know I was like 21 before I figured out you could get to Seattle without having to drive through Yakima? Did you know there's, it's possible to go a different direction, you can avoid, if you're from Yakima, sorry about that. Um, you can get to places without having to drive through. It's, in fact, it's fast, it's crazy. Anyways, so 
you, he's, he's going, I'm going to Jerusalem. We're going to go through Samaria. We're going to go through this area that, you know, sometimes you'd more prefer to avoid. And uh, when they're there, he sent messengers, verse 42, 52, excuse me. He, Jesus, sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because they knew he was headed for Jerusalem, which means we know what you believe about us. If you're pro-Jerusalem as the Temple Mount, that means that you're, in essence, racist towards us. You have a category of belief systems about who we are, where we came from, and we know based on the politics of today that that kind of sort of thing happens as well, depending on what color hat you wear. We can tell anyways. There's all kinds of different things to be like, I see where this is at, right? So they, 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 they immediately have in an eight negative response toward Jesus, because they ask him and his followers, where are you headed? We're headed to Jerusalem. Oh, you're one of those people. We know what you believe about us in this way. And so they engage in inhospitality towards these travelers, which is a big deal. Inhospitality to travelers in this era and in this time frame was not just impolite. It was an absolute affront. See, we've come to expect hospitality while traveling because we approach it from commercial reasons. I swipe my credit card, you give me a room that is hopefully not too close to the ice machine, right? That's how it works. You're inhospitable when you put me right next door to the kids or just underneath the room with six kids upstairs and they're up till midnight or something like that, right? That's inhospitality. But for this, there were no hotels, there were nothing like that. You were expected as a general kindness of who you were and and who you know and all of this kind of stuff to take travelers in. It would be the same way as if uh, I, I said, I heard that you were going to Spokane and be like, oh, I know somebody who lives in Spokane. You just crash at their place. Don't pay for a thing, right? And then you took me up on it, which is kind of crazy. Maybe I wasn't expecting you to do that. And then you knocked on their door and you're like, Brent said we could crash on your couch. And they go, Brent who? <laughs> you be Brent Johnson. You're like, okay. Like, I know who he is, but we're not close enough for you to crash on our couch based on Brent. I'll be calling him after this to remind him of that. Like, that's the kind of like inhospitality sort of piece that's going on, right? This is an aggressive sort of thing. So they, they, hear, they hear that they're going to Jerusalem. They know that the direction, they've categorized them from a sort of uh, discriminatory standpoint. They've expressed inhospitality to them, which is an absolute affront, which is why this leads to this next part of the equation. When the disciples, James and John, saw this. Hold on for one second. Don't go to the next slide yet. James and John, we know them. They're, part, they're two of the three. James, uh, Peter, James, and John were like the tight three inner circle. Jesus had his 12, but then he also had his three. James would go on to, to write a, a book of the Bible. He would go on to be the pastor of the tr- church in Jerusalem post-Jesus. Uh, John, John would be a pastor who in his later years would write the gospel of John. In the gospel of John, we would get words about who Jesus was. It's one of the most highly Christological of the gospels or um, spoke the most highly of who Jesus was. Equating Jesus to, uh, to the, the, the icon of Christ or the father of Christ, Jesus as love. The reason that we associated Jesus with love is because of John. John writes about Jesus being love, the fullest expression of this. One of his most famous verses is one that you grew up with even if you didn't go to church. For God so loved the world. Love shows up over and over and over again in the writings of John about the person of Jesus. 
Same person. So when James and when the disciples James and John saw this affront of inhospitality towards Jesus, here's what their response was. They asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> Same person. Same person. Now, wh- what? What are you talking about, man? A bit of a overreaction. That's responding in a 10 with something that de- de- you know, deserves a two. Now, to be fair, there's some Old Testament precedent. They're, they're like experiencing all this new stuff. They grew up with the Old Testament. They would have most of the stories memorized or, or even the text itself memorized. And I was reading uh, just recently in, uh, in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings, there is a transfer of leadership from the prophetic line. So Elijah uh, dies or is, there's a crazy story there, but uh, anyways, passes the baton onto Elisha. And Elisha then becomes the prophet for Israel in the book of 2 Kings. Uh, and uh, the narrator of uh, 2 Kings or the chronicler or whoever's kind of redactor or whatever, putting all of this together, is quick to point out that Elisha kind of is aggressive with these powers of being a prophet in this role and this title and all of the authority that comes with it in a way that Elijah never was. So the, new, the inheritor, the one who inherited the heir of the estate of prophetic leadership uh, doesn't understand fully and kind of operates in a more aggressive manner than his predecessor ever did. Here's the story in chapter two, verse 23. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel as he was walking along the road. Some boys, teenage boys, came out of the town and jeered at him. Get out of here, baldy. This is, I'm not making this up. Sometimes I like, sometimes I put in verses on the Bible just to make sure that you're like, you know, paying attention. I'll be like, ah, you guys need to read your Bible more. This is in it. I swear, I swear to you, you, you should read this. Get out of here, baldy, they said. Get out of here, baldy, again. They did it again. Uh, He turned around, looked at them, and called down a curse on them in the name of the Lord. Then two bears came out of the wood and mauled the 42 of the boys. (laughs) Yeah, I know. (laughs) Crazy. Bit of an overreaction. Who knows how this story actually, you know, what's happening all this way. So with that sort of stuff in mind, and by the way, that kind of speaks to how like sometimes the people who, you know, somebody who inherits an empire doesn't, or inherits something of authority, doesn't really understand like the stewardship opportunity of of what it was in the first place that got them there. It's like a weird thing. Like, so this is happening with these disciples. They're watching Jesus do all of these miracles. They're like, to some degree, we can do some of this stuff. Jesus, you want us to like, uh, call down fire from heaven and destroy all these people who, who are, 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 are disrespecting you, spitting on your name in this way. You want us to do something about that? And I'm sure Jesus in his internal thinking is going, do I just suck as a rabbi? Like what is happening? Am I that bad at my job that my closest, not even like one of the fringe disciples, like one of the ones that nobody remembers of the 12, you know what I mean? Like these are, this is James and John. What are, you, what are you talking about, man? Not only is that inappropriate, it's the exact opposite of what I taught you to do, which is why in verse 55, Jesus turned and he rebuked them in, in very aggressive language. And he would say that that is, a, that is a kingdom of this world sort of reaction. What I am inviting you into to do is something that is completely other than this. That reaction makes sense in a certain worldview, in a certain way of seeing the world and how you relate to the world and whatever. But listen, I'm expecting and calling you into something completely different. We're not gonna call fire down from heaven, John. 
That's not going to happen. Then he and his disciples went into another village. Eventually, they would make their way into Jerusalem, and they would eventually get to see Jesus and witness. These disciples witnessed Jesus living out this actual teaching, not just in words, but also in deeds. And when uh, eventually they would, they, would, they would find their way in there, they would, they would have the whole Last Supper, all the stuff that we read about during like the Easter story and the Passion thing, and entering into the city when everybody's for him and they're waving palm branches and talking about him being the Messiah and everything, and then turning on him later on as they hear what that would entail for them and, and the challenges and politics involved in, in all of these things. And when they would go to arrest Jesus eventually in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he shares the Last Supper with them, breaks bread with them, talks about what's about to happen, tells them, but they just don't get it. They're just so dense. Then they go and they pray in a garden. And while they're there, these guards show up and there's a lot of them and they have weapons and they have swords and they have all kinds of things. And why in the world would they send a small army to go arrest Jesus who was preaching and teaching publicly and was reachable at any time? Why would they feel the need to be able to go into the garden late at night to be able to, because they assumed that he would react like you would expect anybody to react, like they would react. Well, if we're gonna go do this, we better send guards with him because who knows what's gonna happen. And yet even in this instant, Jesus again underreacts. He's unfairly put on trial. He's unjustly treated. Instead of overreacting, which would make total sense, he sees it as an opportunity. And part of that opportunity is that the Roman governor at the time Pontius Pilate begins to interview him. The way that the politics worked is, you know, Jews were living in uh, occupied Israel at the time. Rome kind of did, but Jerusalem's on the fringe. So it's like you just, it was a backwater town. It was so far away from the central part of the Roman empire in Rome itself that, you know, if you got designated to work there, you you had something in your history that wasn't great. So Pontius Pilate's Pilate finds himself in this situation. He's over there. I just got to put in my time here. I got to put in a few years, keep the peace, keep everything under control, and then I'll be able to pr- get promoted somewhere back closer to Rome, closer to family, closer to everything else. And uh, Jewish people in that time, uh, they had their own like legal system courts, but there was like limitations. They could, you know, get a guy punished or, or flogged or jailed, but they couldn't ask for capital punishment that was outside of their jurisdiction to get that kind of a a, a report or that kind of a response or that kind of a a result, they would have to appeal to Pontius Pilate. So they bring Jesus before Pontius Pilate and said, we want this man killed. Why do you want him killed? Because he's claiming to be the son of God. And Pilate would say, what does that have to do with me? And what does that have to do with Rome? And they begin to say, well, if he's calling people to this and they begin to believe this, then perhaps their allegiance will shift from Caesar to, uh, to God or, or, or to Jesus himself, right? And, and Pilate's kind of processing through some of this. He's still, he's still like, I don't see, I'm not seeing this connection. So he begins to interview Jesus. He begins to ask questions to Jesus. Hey, why do people hate you so much? What is it about you? What have you said and done I've heard reports basically all week long, people were raving about your entrance and I've never seen attitudes switch so fast. So what is it that you have done? What must you have done? There has to be some sort of a backstory. Nobody has this kind of a trajectory in this relation with people. What is your problem? What is happening with this? And Jesus decides to just not respond and be quiet and kind of flip the questions back on him, saying, who do you... Who do you think that I am? What have you heard said about you? Listen, he's like, Pilate at one point goes back out to the people and he says, hey, I don't find anything wrong with this person. What am I missing? What's involved with this? 
And he goes back into Jesus and he asks him this question, verse 10 of John chapter 19, as John would write it. Do you refuse to speak to me? Do you, a peasant carpenter slash quasi rabbi, weird, like, yeah, apparently popular for a little bit, but really nothing in light of who I am. Do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you understand how authority works? Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? It is within my ability. It is within my control. This is essentially what Pilate's saying. To control your future, your future rests with me. Do you not recognize that I control the outcome of this situation? And Jesus just stands there, no response. Kind of give him a look that caused Pilate to perhaps begin to question, do I? I mean, what is going on with this person? If Jesus believed what everybody else believed, that Pilate does indeed and did indeed control the outcome of the situation. The right response in this scenario would have been to get down on his knees and beg for mercy, beg for pardon, or beg for leniency in the punishment. And for whatever reason, Jesus did not see it this way. And he invites us not to see it that way as well. Here's his eventual response after much plotting and, and, or much prodding and, and, kind of talk to me. Verse 11, Jesus says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And one way to read this is to see Jesus as sort of minimizing Pilate's power. Like, uh, you know, like with almost like with a spit, like a venomous sort of, you only talk this way because you have Rome's backing, but you're really nothing, Right? you're a product of empire and empire is whatever. And, but eventually the Roman empire won't exist anymore and you'll have nothing, right? I mean, you could kind of read that in the way that he's seen this. But when you look at Pilate's response, it makes you think that the way Jesus said it, his tone, his choice of words was, an, was he was seeing this as an opportunity not as an overreaction in this way, not overreacting in, in, in vengeance and revenge or whatever. Don't worry, you'll get yours in the end. He's simply making a statement about this. He's not talking, I think Pilate's realizing this. He's not talking about empire. Maybe he's on to something else in this. Maybe the peace with which, it, with, with which he said this phrase was more of a statement of fact rather than vitriol and hatred and animosity and revenge and all that kind of stuff. He's just making a statement about real ultimate control. You are not really in control at all. You do not control your outcomes. You live with this badge, with this authority, with this, I tell people to go do this and they do it. And you live in this, you know, fortress of things and you have all this regalia and all this kind of stuff. And every time you've said something, it's done because you've had perceived authority that's been given to you through empire. But let me just tell you right now, you really don't have any sort of control over outcomes. You don't even control your own outcome. Maybe that's why you're here in Jerusalem, in Israel. You've been banished to the outskirts of the empire. You're hoping for any sort of reprieve in this. 
you act like your life is so in control, but it's not really all that much in control, is it? Which I think is probably more clo- is closer to Jesus's attitude towards Pilate and Pilate's realization in the moment about Jesus, not saying I'm taking this as a response, but helping him see a bigger picture. I'm not in control of my life as much as I think I am, which is a fantastic spot to be in and a place that Jesus invites all of us into. And as Americans, it's really tough because our life feels a, a lot like we're in control which is why we check our 401ks every once in a while, which is why we've got all the things on our phones to be able to find my kid wherever they're at, which is why I get reports about this, which is why I have a ring doorbell. I like to be in control and know when my package gets delivered. I like to be able to unlock it from here. I can do this. I can open and shut my garage. Look at this. Look at how in control of my life I am. We love control. And the invitation that Paul, that, that Jesus is trying to invite Pilate into in this is like, listen, but though if you really think about it, you're not really in as much control of your life as you really think that you are, which is why I think Pilate responds in this way. From then on, verse 12, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. He tried his best with the authority that he had to set Jesus free, negotiating with the people. What, you know, it's customary that we release a prisoner during this time. And he picks the most vilest human creature at the time that would be like, for sure, it's, if it's between Jesus and this Barabbas guy, they're gonna pick, who do you want? Thinking that they'll take Jesus and they don't. They say, free Barabbas. And he's like, oh my gosh, I can't even control this. And he, again, he could have done some sort of you know, presidential pardon. He could have done something, but he knows it's gonna cause an uprising. And what ha- what's gonna happen in that uprising is that word's gonna send out, there's gonna be riots. And what Rome doesn't want from me is you know, being in charge of a city that happens to be riots because of a decision that I made of my own agency. I'm gonna lose my job. I'm gonna get in trouble. I don't wanna do this. I want to set him free, but I don't even have the power. Even though I do have the power, I'm not really in control of my life as much as I thought that I was. He tried desperately to free Jesus and he couldn't pull himself to do it. Why? Because in that moment, I think he realized not even in control of my own outcomes, not in control nearly as much as I thought I was. Peter, reflecting on this years later in his letter to his church, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, he remembered this and he writes it almost poetically. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Just like he taught us. He would say this over and over again. We'd hear it and we'd be like, yeah, 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 yeah. But like they met, they like message, you want us to call fire down on them? Guys, you're not getting it. Like, come on. You're gonna be writing about love soon. You can't be calling fire down on people and then talk about love. Have you experienced this kind of stuff? But here's what we remember. When they, when they, when they did their worst to him, He did not overreact in response. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. What we remember about Jesus, what I remember about Jesus, he never lived a single day of his life assuming that anyone other than his heavenly father determines the outcomes. And then he invites us to do the same. It's the invitation that we have for those of us who call ourselves Christians, followers of Jesus, trying to live our lives in the way that Jesus taught, what would it look like if that was said about us? <clears throat> what would it look like if no matter what life throws at us, we would say, 
these circumstances have no power over me. These circumstances have no power. They, they act like they do. I live a lot of my times as if they do. Sometimes I've been, I've been known to react in a way that I, even though I say with my mouth, God, you're in control, my fear of lack of control reflects that I don't actually believe that. So instead, we would say, no matter what happens in this way, I'm accountable to one thing. What if I live my life in the same way that Jesus did every single day of my life, assuming that anyone other than my heavenly father uh, isn't the one who determines outcomes? It's just him alone. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus. We'd be recognized by our underreactions because the circumstances are outside of our control anyways. And they always have been, they always will be. And we can trust and rest in the fact that God is in control of these things. That is our invitation. That is what we get a chance to do. Let's pray. Father, our prayer <clears throat> is that we might actually get put in opportunities and circumstances to test this out and see this. Now, it's scary to kind of pray for that because that's a dangerous sort of prayer, but we can talk all we want. But sometimes our reactions have the opportunity, again, to show us our, our true belief about who holds our outcomes or our lack of belief in that way. So <clears throat> our prayer is that we would go, and my prayer for us is, is that I would, and we corporately together would live, begin to live as if we are under the authority of the only one who judges justly. That we would see opportunities for that, like, are, are, that are potentially where we've been treated unfairly, unjustly, either by individual persons or just life in general, like curveballs in life. We'd be like, this is not fair. I don't deserve this. I deserve better than this. And we can get angry at you and we can get angry at situations and circumstances and angry at people and angry at family members and angry at people at work. And, and we can react. And, and, and a lot of times for most people, that those sort of reactions would be justified. But instead, you invite us to underreact in those situations, not because it's the cool thing to do, but because we find ourselves going, I'm not, those things aren't really in my control anyways. I serve a God who is in control. So help that to be true for us. Give us wisdom to know what amazing might look like for us in the area of underreactions and give us the wisdom to know what it looks like, the courage to do something about it in your name. Thanks again for listening. If you've got more questions about the church or community group options for connecting with East Lakers outside of Sunday mornings, I'd encourage you to check out our website, eastlaketricities.com, or better yet, download our app by searching East Lake Tri Cities in your favorite app store.